0: Oh,
1: Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then Podcast. I'm Stephen Sox.
0: And I'm Lori Sox.
1: And today we're joined again by Dr. Brian Scottco, the director of the Down syndrome program at Mass General Hospital. Today we talk about Alzheimer's, how it impacts us in our community, and preventive measures we can take.
0: Welcome, Dr. Brian Scottko.
1: Hello, Brian. Hi,
0: good morning. Hi Lori. Hi,
2: Stephen. Hey. Great to see you again.
1: Good to see you too. I mean, it's so great having you. It's really always is.
0: wonderful oh to
2: my see gosh. you. I really look forward to our conversations. They're so rich. And thank you before we get started for posting and reposting on Twitter. It's just been so fun to kind of get the information out there. You guys are just so great.
1: We're trying, you know, I mean that we we try to like do Facebook, Twitter, little Instagram, and you do what you can, right? But we're so happy you're becoming like a regular guest.
0: I love this. I love our conversations because I feel like they're they have all the information that we want that we wanted that we continue to want. And that it's nice to be able to make it available to people.
2: Well, you know this, but your word is getting out there because people now email me, you know, I get emails all the time, but they say, I heard you on this podcast. If we knew that. And so like it's out there. So, you know, together we're, we're, we're really getting the info out there. So thank you for, for giving this medium.
0: Oh, great. And I have to tell you, I ordered your book for Sophia and she's reading it, but I'm reading it as well, like in tandem with her. And that book I think should be given to every new family. I think that book should be in every school library for people because it has all the information. It has all the answers to questions that I have. And she's really enjoying getting, uh, she's, she's making notes of questions she's going to ask you.
2: Fantastic. I can't wait for that one. That one's going to be a real fun interview.
0: Yeah. So should we get started?
2: Yeah.
1: You know, this episode's about Alzheimer's and and the way it impacts the Down syndrome community. And I wasn't aware of the percentages of, of adults with Down syndrome that do end up getting Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia. And we just thought it was you were the person to have on to talk about and to get some answers.
2: Stephen I'm so glad we're able to talk about this topic, because sometimes we don't want in our community to talk about difficult news. But it's important to talk about the realities, because together we need to support families who have a loved one struggling with Alzheimer's disease. But I also hope we could talk today about proactive steps that parents who have younger ones with Down syndrome could take to hopefully prevent Alzheimer's disease from becoming a part of their child's reality.
0: Just the awareness of Alzheimer's in general, and in all communities, to have the information and support out there, I think that's good for everyone. I know families whose loved ones have had Alzheimer's, and I know it's a very challenging path. And I think that's why we tend to shy away from having the conversation. But I think you're absolutely right with with knowledge is power, right? It gives us the ability and empowers us to make changes and be prepared.
2: It's so true, and we know that there's a lot of misinformation that's on the web or kind of spread. So I always feel it's important to start with the reality, as uncomfortable as the facts might be. We don't have any true documented cases of people with Down syndrome developing Alzheimer's before the age of 35. But after the age of 35, people with Down syndrome are more likely to develop Alzheimer's at a faster pace than their neurotypically developing peers. And while we don't have perfect statistics, roughly around 40% of people with Down syndrome starting at the age of 40 will start to exhibit early signs of dementia related to Alzheimer's, and about 50% by the age of 50. That rises to about 60% by age 60. Now, what is in those numbers is not everyone with Down syndrome will develop dementia related to Alzheimer's. And the big question that scientists still do not understand is why. Why some, but not others? And we could start to untangle a little bit of that, but I wanted to start with those numbers because they are our realities. And those listeners who have an adult loved one with Down syndrome who does have Alzheimer's disease, I want all of them to know you are not alone. There is a community to support you. There are resources to support you. And this is a life journey, and the Down syndrome community can and will continue to take that life journey with you and your loved one with Down syndrome.
1: Now, these numbers are numbers that are probably you're accessing just generally through the medical community, but what are you seeing? Are you seeing similar numbers in your hospital and your clinic?
2: In our clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital, we see all ages of people with Down syndrome, from prenatal consults to infants to children and adolescents to adults and seniors with Down syndrome. And yes, certainly as individuals with Down syndrome get older in the 40s and 50s, we start to see an increased early onset of Alzheimer's disease and dementia in our loved ones with Down syndrome. It's important to note that in our population of loved ones with Down syndrome, the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's don't necessarily present as they do in the typical population. So you think of your grandfather or your grandmother whose first signs is forgetfulness or first signs is memory loss. For someone with Down syndrome, typically the first signs will be a change in behavior, something that is different from routine, and unfortunately sometimes seizures could precede Alzheimer's disease at an older age. So someone with Down syndrome who has a routine, an adult, let's say 40 year old, that brings them comfort and all of a sudden doesn't like that routine or is getting anxious or getting upset or really starting to have behavioral changes. Sometimes those are the early symptoms and it's important to be able to access healthcare professionals who know how to distinguish. Alzheimer's disease in someone with Down syndrome because a diagnosis is important because then we can get access to the right support systems and resources and the right workup be there.
0: I was just going to ask you, what are the signs that people could look for? We, we usually have this where, where, as you're talking, I think of the question and you, and, and you answer it for me.
2: But let me jump on that because those signs that I mentioned could be common signs that are not Alzheimer's disease. So another challenge we have in our community is diagnostic overshadowing, which means, oh, yeah, a neurologist will say, you have an adult with Down syndrome, they're having issues, it must be early Alzheimer's, it must be early Alzheimer's, when in fact, it has nothing to do with Alzheimer's. It might be obstructive sleep apnea, it might be thyroid being low, it might be other conditions that are low. So people with Down syndrome, because we don't have a blood test that says, yes, this is Alzheimer's, It is imperative that we, as a medical community, make sure we look for all other diagnoses that are treatable that might masquerade with the same symptoms. An adult with Down syndrome who has rip-roar and severe obstructive sleep apnea that was never detected is slowly going to have a brain that's not getting enough oxygen when they're sleeping. And so they're going to have brain fog, brain fog, brain fog. And if they're labeled with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, not only is that inaccurate, it is missing a valuable treatment because we do know how to treat um, obstructive sleep apnea. And I can't tell you how many patients we've seen that come with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and we discover it's just obstructive sleep apnea. And once we treat that, the brain fog lifts and they're back with us. So it's important to get an accurate diagnosis.
0: As caregivers, how do we know the difference and how do we know to ask?
2: I always say trust your instincts, so if you have a loved one with Down syndrome and something is changing, ask your medical professionals, ask the questions. Sometimes we tend to overlook or just say everything is going to be okay, but trust your instincts, that is so important. Second, if your primary care physicians are not aware and haven't treated a lot of people with Down syndrome, I know on a previous podcast, we talked all about Down syndrome clinic to you, the virtual online program. If individuals and their loved ones enter their concerns there, our online program is programmed to suggest and detect perhaps this could be Alzheimer's and we have programmed in there all the resources and links for those who need it. So if you don't have a local professional, Down syndrome clinic to you could be your first step or your front door to kind of explore some of those symptoms. We also, through Down syndrome clinic to you, walk you through all of those essential workups to make sure we're not missing something that is easily treatable, like even a low thyroid could lead to brain fogging. So it's all there. And of course, you know, the Down syndrome community is online and we're here to support each other and lots of Down syndrome organizations do offer that parent-to-parent support.
1: Well, as always, when you're on, I'm going to have in the show notes the Down syndrome to you link, which is such a valuable tool and we can talk about that later as well. But uh, when we talk about diagnosis of Alzheimer's, that's something that is a post-mortem diagnosis, like it's something that isn't technically diagnosed until uh, the passing of the individual? Is that true?
2: It's a great question. To have a definitive diagnosis, it really is an examination of the brain after someone dies. But increasingly, we have clinical tools to really determine whether or not the person has the clinical signs of Alzheimer's disease. And after the medical conditions that might masquerade as Alzheimer's have been ruled out and said, oh, it's not there. The next step is to get something called a neuropsych assessment. And those listeners who have young kids with Down syndrome know all about that, right? We're going to get a neuropsych assessment in order to prepare for school because they're going to tell us how our loved ones with Down syndrome really do well in math and English and support and how we tailor their educational system. So a neuropsych assessment is a battery of academic tests to be able to assess someone's learning profile. We use them a lot in the school age children. Those neuropsych tests also have adult components. And so the recommendations that everyone with Down syndrome get a neuropsych assessment around the age of 35 when they're healthy and well so we know their adult baseline performance. And then if, someday, there is a noticeable change in that loved one with Down syndrome, you will get another neuropsych assessment test and how helpful to be able to compare it to that own person's baseline. And that really is so helpful because if we start to see changes there that are not explained by other medical diagnoses, that's when we start to make sure that we give an accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's and make sure the person and the family gets the supports.
0: When you're doing one of those neuropsych assessments, I know um, Liam had to take a few when he was going to school. The biggest challenge was people coming in who didn't understand Liam at a young age or didn't know Liam, caught him on an off day, and we would get some invalid psych assessments, things that were not an accurate profile that we had to challenge. Is there any recommendation of how to seek out a neuropsych assessment, what to look for in an assessor?
2: I'm glad you raised that because not all neuropsychs are made the same way, right? We know that the tests are validated tests, but how they're administered, how the person is made to feel comfortable, how they're able to be comfortable working with someone with an intellectual disability really does matter. My first recommendation would be talk to other parents in your area who have adults with Down syndrome who've gotten a neuropsych. You know, parents know best, and it's kind of that word-to-word, kind of mouth-to-mouth recommendation that really goes a long way. Next step is see if there is an adult Down syndrome clinic in your local neighborhood. There are some few ones that are out there. If so, you're lucky and make yourself available of that resource. If not, the next step is to contact the local adult neurology program, which frequently does have a memory clinic or an Alzheimer's disease clinic. And the best question to ask them is, do they have prior experience doing neuropsych assessments in adults with Down syndrome? And if the answer is no, you got to pause unless you have no other options. But if the answer is yes, oh, we've worked with a lot of adults with Down syndrome, then I think that should give you comfort to kind of go through and get the test. But the best element is to have a before and after. So to have that baseline test and ideally be able to go back to that same service and provider to do that testing again on the person with Down syndrome.
1: I don't think that could be stressed enough as the do it early when when we're getting a good baseline. because. When you give me the numbers of 40%, 50% at 50, 60 at 60, you know, 60, I, I honestly thought the numbers were higher than that. I don't, I don't know if that's just because of, of what I've been reading or told, or, or not not through the medical community, but probably just reading through the downstream community, just saying, oh yeah, this is going to happen, as as people tend to do. You know, our kids are going to do this, or our or these adults are going to do that, and and even on our own community, we have these stereotypes. But you can see when you when you go to a doctor and you haven't done this baseline, that that could be the go-to. And we want to make sure we're diagnosing, making the correct diagnosis, as you said, because there's many things that, that can cause, quote-unquote, a brain fog or symptoms that seem similar to what you're looking out for that are totally correctable. So maybe we can get into uh, what you've come across and what you uh, feel are, are things that we can do to put our loved ones in that other
2: percentage category of not having to deal with this? Before I go there, I want to touch on one good point, Stephen, that you mentioned, and you could go online and there could be some statistics that all people with Down syndrome have Alzheimer's disease. I want to say that statistic is misleading, but let's dig a little bit deeper into what that means. It means that all people with Down syndrome, after they pass away, adults, if we look at their brains, there are plaques that have accumulated. And we know that plaques are one of the signs that we believe lead to Alzheimer's disease. So it is true that nearly all adults with Down syndrome have plaque accumulation in their brain. But what is not true is people who have plaque accumulation in their brain, not all of them have any symptoms of dementia or diagnosis. So the statistic, everyone with Down syndrome has pathological changes of Alzheimer's. Okay, that's true on the the, the basic brain level. But what really matters to families and to clinicians are whether there are signs and symptoms. And those numbers are are nearly half, as you point out.
0: The reason we have these conversations is to really suss out the misperceptions and the misinformation that's out there, because I believe that as a community, that is one of our biggest challenges is the misinformation. What's plaque on the brain? And do neurotypical brains get that as well?
2: We know that... There are lots of different reasons that could lead to Alzheimer's in all of us, and two big components are beta amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, two big words. But those are basically garbage that accumulates and clumps together in brains, and in those individuals who develop those over time, that is believed to be one of the contributors, primary contributors to Alzheimer's disease. People with Down syndrome start to accumulate those plaques at an early age. Why is that? Because the gene that encodes those plaques for all of us is found on chromosome 21. So you and I, we have two copies of that. So we're slow, if ever, to develop those plaques. People with Down syndrome have three copies of chromosome 21, an extra dosage of that gene, which means at a very early age, they start to pump out and accumulate those plaques. And so, this is believed to be one of the primary reasons why people with Down syndrome start to um, show signs of dementia, and Alzheimer's, at an earlier age because of that overdosage of that gene.
0: And you say this this accumulates. I think this is what you're going to talk about now. So, you know, in any other situation, I'm I'm guessing we're getting it a way to like cleanse and and rid our rid ourselves of those accumulations. Is that what we're going to talk about for preventive medicine?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, Lori, I've been challenged when I get to go on the road and talk to families. The number one question I get is, how could we prevent Alzheimer's disease? We don't know which person with Down syndrome will develop it. But right now, I have a 14-year-old. Right now, I have a three-year-old. What can I do right now? And I was asked that question so often. I said, I owe it to my patients to do a deep dive in the research literature. Now, here's what's unfair about the research literature. I could access it because I have permission through my hospital to access Harvard Medical School Library, and I could read everything. But my own mother, who has my adult sister with Down syndrome, doesn't have access to those same journals. We hide them behind firewalls. So what do parents get? They get maybe some studies that make the media. Maybe they get things that are posted on Facebook. But there is a disequilibrium of information between what clinicians have and what parents have access to. That is changing. But what I wanted to do is look at all of those research papers and say, what are research that's proven that are translatable right now into homes? And I've kind of put this into an online program that I've called Down Syndrome Brain Train. And in Down Syndrome Brain Train, I break things down into what I call smart moves, S-M-A-R-T. We can briefly touch on those, but to take the first one, for example, the S stands for social networks. It's talking about how many friends and how many family members do you have in your life? You say, what does that have to do with Alzheimer's disease? Well, there was one study that was done in the United States of 3,000 typical adults, ages 62 to 90. And it showed that in these neurotypical adults, those adults that had fewer friends and smaller network sizes we're at a higher chance of developing Alzheimer's disease. Why is that? Researchers are still trying to determine this, but somehow having friends and having family ask us questions, challenges our brains, keeps our brain active, keeps our brain healthy. Now let's apply this to people with Down syndrome because we know that for the neurotypical population, friendship, 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 lots of network, density size is important. Let's talk about people with Down syndrome. What happens as they get older? their friends started moving away from college. Maybe they have less transportation opportunities to stay in touch with people with Down syndrome. Maybe when they're with people, they are the ones who kind of stand by and what I call the listeners in a group, but they're not the actively engaged group. So we really need to dose friendship as though it's medicine. One is fun, people need friends, it makes a difference, but the research is clear for the neurotypical population we need to have friends that protect us and we actively need to think about it and help support it for our loved ones with down syndrome.
0: So I'm going to start on on the S right there and that comes back to inclusion. Uh, one of our favorite topics. It's I think that starts with uh, getting our loved ones in an inclusive environment starting right from go in school because they then they'll get I think it's part of it is you know, uh, we can see after the pandemic, uh, neurotypical, like myself going into a grocery store and uh, the small talk and having to relearn that. I mean, I think everybody in the world right now can understand what that feels like to not have an inclusive environment. I think the pandemic is a really, if anybody has any questions, if you're going into an IEP, or let's talk about the reaction that we've had to the neurotypical population, how we need to socialize them, how we need to get supports, how we're making these extra strides to create opportunities for them. So that's what we're going, we're, we're going to start at is that socialization is its importance for the development of the brain in other ways.
2: Couldn't agree more. Educational and social inclusion is medicine. It is a preventive action we must give to people with Down syndrome for all the benefits you described, but also I'm now adding to the list to potentially prevent and stave off Alzheimer's. It is that serious.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what's M?
2: M is move. Move. Move, 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 exercise. I'm going to get all neuro on us, right? So let's go deep into the brain. We have these plaques that accumulate, but our body has a special neuron that will clean it up. It's called the glial cell. And glial cells right now, hopefully in our brains right now, are cleaning up any debris. They make sure it's not there. But as we get older, those glial cells get tired, they get exhausted, and they stop working. And that's when the garbage accumulates. What will reactivate glial cells? We know definitively exercise. There were 59 studies done between 1947 and 2009 shows that typical adults who get more physical um, activity are less likely statistically to develop Alzheimer's disease. And we even have it down to the the neurological level where the glial cells get stimulated by that exercise and exercise starts to then um, make them active and clean up the brain. Now, we have guidelines for how much exercise all of us should be getting, and people with Down syndrome are no different. If anything, I would argue they need more exercise than their neurotypical counterparts because of this Alzheimer's load. But every study we do and we look at, and even in our own clinic, less than 1% of people with Down syndrome are meeting even the basic minimal guidelines for the amount of exercise that they should be given, according to the American Heart Association. If we know that exercise is medicine and exercise can activate those blood cells and those glial cells, then we should be making sure that people with Down syndrome take that every day as much as they take their thyroid medicine. Exercise is so important.
0: What's the basic guideline?
2: The basic guideline is that if you have a loved one, six to 17, they should be getting at least 60 minutes per day of moderate to vigorous intensive activity. And if you have someone who is an adult they need at least 150 minutes per week of moderate aerobic activity or 75 minutes per week of vigorous aerobic activity. Now let's talk about Special Olympics. I love Special Olympics. My sister with Down syndrome loves their activities and I'm so grateful for all of the benefits it brings. But for many Special Olympics, let's let's take my sister's basketball practice. She gets there, she's activating the S of SMART. She's socializing, she's getting together, et cetera. But of the 60 minutes she's there, uh, if we're going to be generous, maybe she breaks the sweat, maybe for like five minutes out of those 60 minutes while she's waiting. Let's not fool ourselves. That is not moderate to vigorous activity. What is moderate? You need to be doing um, biking. You need to be shooting baskets all the time. You need to have brisk walking, right? Vigorous activity is running, laps, aerobic dancing, Zumba, cycling fast, jumping ropes, soccer games, basketball games, moving, moving, moving. Uh, Most people with Down syndrome don't even get to moderate intensive aerobic activities. And it just needs to be ingrained into their fabric at an early age to know that this is who they are and this is keeping them healthy.
0: Brian, I think that has to do with the misperception of the limits that are on our children. You know, starting right off the bat with the first thing we hear is low tone without knowing or it even being explained to us in a, a real honest way. We're not given the opportunities to see our our children with equality as far as physical health. Now, I understand that there are some health conditions which may put a, a limit, which we can talk about how to approach physical fitness on that realm. But I think that does come from the misperception that uh, of our of our child's ability for the lack of inclusion when it is participating in a game they're usually given the role as a helper or some kind of token and so I think that's the conversation that needs to change is that you know when Sophia was in second grade she didn't know all the rules of the game and yeah it was a little awkward and some kids could be a little rough or bullying uh, telling her to learn the learn the rules, but she was still given the opportunity to play. And I think that with our kids, it's they don't know the rule, they don't play. And nobody wants to breach that line and give them the same learning curve as their neurotypical peers.
2: It's such a good point. And it shows how so many psychosocial factors are getting in the way of where biology is not a problem, right? So we know. For example, we we all have seen the news. We have people with Down syndrome who are running Ironmans and accomplishing Ironmans. We have people with Down syndrome who have swum the English Channel. Now, those are extraordinary events. Not everyone needs to do those, But it shows that the biology does not get in the way. We get in the way. Our schools get in the way. Our society gets in the way. And we need to strip down those barriers so that people with Down syndrome get access to good, healthy um, exercise. It is true, there are some people with Down syndrome who either don't sweat or sweat a little, and so therefore they just need to have some cooling blankets or some mist spray on them, but they can and should still be having aerobic activities. And I would say the overwhelming majority of people with Down syndrome we take care of, there is no contraindication why they shouldn't be engaged in rigorous activity. So um, no excuses anymore, We, we need to get them out there.
0: I think that's the message that parents need to hear is society's excuses become our reasons, and so when you're presented with a school administration that doesn't want to support your child, that's the one where we we mention that d word that sometimes gets people moving and it's discrimination, and that will oftentimes open the visions of your school administration. Uh, Because it it isn't, if your child can, they should be given that same opportunity, especially, I mean, you're not talking about college athletics. You're talking about at that foundational level, which with every child, it matters so much. Like I'm going to use Sophia again this pandemic we used to actually go out and run and run and so and she didn't have the best stride because to be honest I may have carried her a lot when she was a little hook like up until the time she was two I'm not sure if her feet touched the ground but she over the last you know 16 months has been able to find a stride which is very challenging to do when she had none but she was given that opportunity and it's that's the same opportunity that we're asking no, not even ask. it's not even, I think that's the mindset we need to get rid of. It's like, I'm not going to ask you for equality. We're equal. And if you give anything less than that, you're actually impeding the quality of our children's lives on an educational level, meaning that you're impacting their ability to go out and function post-education. And now you're, you're impacting them in a negative way where we have opportunities to have this preventive medicine towards Alzheimer's. And I think that if that doesn't put fire under your feet, you know, that, that, that that should definitely put fire under your feet to say, we're not going to do this anymore because the impact of the, the social limits and, and barriers is now fundamentally greater. And we have proof of that.
2: There's so many parents I know who are engaged in conversations with the school about the IEPs or the individual education plans. And they're focused a lot on math class and focused on reading class. And that's important, and I don't wanna take that away. But how many people ask, let's take a look at physical education. Okay, do we have an IEP goal to make sure there's inclusive physical education? And by the way, how much exercise and aerobic activity is my child getting during the physical ed class, because that is as important for that brain development as the math and reading. So we really need to kind of take a look at all aspects and all opportunities for inclusive access to good aerobic activity.
0: So inquire about those goals. And they do offer an APE, which is adaptive, which I think can help uh, learn the games, but that should be in addition to a to allow that PE class. Re, right. Yeah. To make that regular PE class accessible and make the most out of what that PE class should be.
1: You know what I find as well is that we as a community it, and society, we need to push our children and push our adults with Down syndrome as well. Like when you talked about Sophia and learning her stride, you made the opportunity happen by pushing her to do to do the work.
0: And it wasn't always fun.
1: No, but it's very for easy for both of us. <laughs> for, and I've used the analogy before when we go to a birthday party, that Liam is most definitely given the second piece of cake. He, he is treated uh, and, and coddled a lot of times in a social situation. And that's reflective. in when he says, I don't want to do this, you know, who who's going to want to go and, and dance for an hour or a half hour all the time, or, or go for a bike ride or go for a walk, a long brisk, walk. And when there's resistance there, a lot of times we as a community, and I've done it myself, can say, okay, all right, well, we'll take a break. But we really need to push and know that biologically we can.
0: And we know that there, I mean, we just know it behaviorally that there are motivators out there and there are if-thens at every age. They work for me. <laughs> Thank they work, goodness for the they iPad. Work, right? They work for everybody. There's this motivation for everybody. I know I do it to my own self sometimes. And so there is, there's, it's really, it's time to get past our excuses because it's so important.
2: You know, and it's about finding that motivator and what makes it fun. So what we're all not saying is everyone with Down syndrome needs to be a runner because if it's not fun, it's never going to stick, right? And my colleague, uh, Dr. Nicholas Oreskovich actually did a study where he asked people with Down syndrome and their families what would be your preferred mechanism of exercise? And probably not surprising to a lot of listeners, it's aerobic dance. So people with Down syndrome have a great rhythm, they love to dance and you know what? Zumba classes are really fun and those qualify as aerobic activity. So I have seen a lot of my patients with Down syndrome really find a great Zumba class and therefore it doesn't become a chore but that exercise is a byproduct of having fun. So, really, kind of working with your loved one went Down syndrome, identifying what do they like, and really trying to kind of build in that exercise. But we just can't sit back and say nothing works. Something has to work.
0: And when we're looking for the class, whatever that class is, let's try to make it an inclusive class. Let's work our hardest to find a gym or a dance studio and just em- enroll our kids without. having that precursor as we need to validate their existence in that class. And if there seems to be a problem where that institution doesn't want to be inclusive, then you deal with that. But I think for the most part, you're going to find that inclusion is pretty cool right now and and people want to embrace that. Um, A, did we do A? So we did
2: S, which is socialize and move. A I call activate the brain. So just as much as our muscles need exercise, our brain needs activities. What does this mean? There was a study of nearly 3,000 adults, ages 65 and older in the United States. None of them had Alzheimer's disease and they were all quote, neurotypically developing individuals. And those who had access to brain games or memory games showed immediate improvement on their cognitive abilities, which persisted for 10 years more and above their neurotypical counterparts. So you hear about doing crossword puzzles or keeping your brain active. It is so true. Your brain is an organ that needs to be active. After people with Down syndrome, typically after the age of 22 graduate from school, how much are we keeping their brain active? Is their job challenging? Are we doing the equivalent of brain exercises? So in my program online, I have lots of different examples of how we could kind of stimulate the brain at low cost fun games that can be done around the house and it doesn't need to cost a lot. You know, classically you think about those memory games where you kind of flip cards and match it, that's fun to play. Even if you have change in your pocket, you could take it out and you could have four coins in front of you, heads up, heads down, have the person look, have them turn around, mess them all up and see if they could replace it in the order that it is. So even kind of coin matching could work. Here's another provocative thing I'm going to put out there, which a lot of listeners are going to start to write me about. TV is not our friend. Why? TV has been shown over and over again to be a passive experience. And I get it. At the end of the day, sometimes we just need TV to look at. But screen time has been going up enormously in in America and the pandemic didn't help. I understand it was a necessity often during the pandemic. Well, what happens during screen time? We sit, we take it in and it's passive. The brain is not being activated. What if we replaced all of that screen time that so many adults with Down syndrome are using with active games or brain games that they have around. And I come up with lots of examples. And I also want to say that my wife and I try to live what I practice. So we cut the cord. We have no TV in our own lives. And I have to say, we used to like have dinner and kind of, kind of watch TV. And now that we don't have TV. We have to talk to each other and there's a socialization, right? And it's amazing what happens when you kind of reduce the technology in your household.
1: Wow, we thought we were doing something when we just went down to one TV in the den. (laughs) I I do think also that uh, when you talked about the matching game, I think of that as such a great go-to for Liam. It's something that he really engages with those cards, and that and it's exciting because the cards can—he likes cards to begin with—but the cards can have these really fun images on it, and it's a really fun
2: game for everyone.
0: Now, would board games be challenging for your brain?
2: I think any game that has strategy, you need to think about it. I love board games, like. What amazing, you have socialization, you're playing something, you have to think about something, and you're not just watching, you know, the sound of music for the 50th time on DVD, right? And so, again, just trying to replace some of those activities at an early age, again, think of it as exercise for the brain. And this is where we could bring in siblings. This is where we could bring in friends. Moms and dads don't have to do it all the time. There are so many kind of fun ways and free ways to be able to make things exciting. You know, One thing, I call it the junk game, and that is you look on your desk and you say, oh, I got a stapler, I got a pencil, I got this, I got all this junk on my desk, and you tell your loved one to stare at it, and then you have them turn around and you remove one thing. So you remove the stapler, and then you have them turn around. What's missing, right? All you need is junk, like your desk of junk has just turned into a memory game, and it's so fun to play, and it's only fair if we do it back and forth. So then mom or dad gets to turn around or the friend gets to turn around and you go back and forth. And you've just created a memory game out of junk.
0: Per day, how long would you put aside for brain work?
2: I would like to say that everyone should play at least one memory game per week. You know, it doesn't have to make it fun. Your games just to get it in there. But many of these are just so easy to do just to kind of incorporate here or there while mom or dad is maybe getting dinner ready. Why not just kind of play a a word chaining game or a memory game or have the siblings kind of do things together? So less than making it a defined activity, incorporating it into life, I think is really important. But uh, let's not forget because it's really important, especially as people graduate from school and don't have that constant academic stimulation that our classrooms afford.
0: So this isn't something that we're saying, put 30 minutes aside every day, though, that would probably be good. This is just something that let's start incorporating ways to activate that part of our brain. Is reading a good brain activator?
2: I'm so glad you bring that up. I have a whole section on reading. Reading is so marvelous because you have to imagine and you could talk about it and it could be stimulating, et cetera. But let's talk about what happened to our books over time. When we were all growing up, we had the paper books, right, with just words on there and pictures. And so we had to flip the pages, we had to engage, and we had to think about it, we had to talk about it with our parents, right? Now, you have things on iPad where the thing reads it for yourself, you have birds coming in, it's animated. What did we turn those books into? TV, right? So we need to, whenever possible, go retro and choose books that are printed or stripped of animation because it's there that you get actively involved. And I like to say everyone with Down syndrome should be doing at least five minutes of reading every day with a peer or a partner. So you kind of have that back and forth, you have that friendship, you have that challenging. Reading is just such a healthy activity for our brains.
0: And this is when we're gonna talk, uh, we're gonna go back to the foundation. When your child is going into school, And they are trying to pull them off curriculum or they do not want to teach your child to read because they are telling you your child will not learn to read. Your child will not learn to read if you do not teach your child to read.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know if we've ever stated strongly enough that Liam reads. And he had a
0: speech therapy this week. And the woman was sorry to cut you off. But the woman was saying that and I she was going through and you know, he's a visual learner. So I said, he works best if you present a sentence, so he can read it. And she goes, Oh, does he recognize letters? And I said, No, he reads. And she was like, Oh, that was she's a great therapist. It was such a window into her expectation of someone with Down syndrome is to not be able to read.
1: So if there's a myth out there that people with Down syndrome probably won't read, then then just squash that myth and you you just push
2: and keep going because it'll happen.
0: Yeah, they will only not read if you do not teach them to read.
2: We have to set expectations high because if we don't, then we're just sacrificing so much potential in our loved ones with Down syndrome. You know, one thing I hear often is as individuals advance chronological age, they're not able to find print books or books that are on topics that they enjoy at their reading level. So wanna throw out a great website and we can put in the show notes for, for example, tarheelreader.org. So tarheel, just like from UNC, T-A-R-H-E-E-L reader.org. So my colleagues who are professors in literacy, Dave Copenhaver and Karen Erickson, are in the firm belief that everyone has the dignity to read. Everyone should have access to read. And what they do is in this portal, you get free books that are user kind of deposited on topics that are age appropriate where you are, but at a reading level that you can engage. So if you have a loved one with Down syndrome who, let's say they're, they're still at the third grade reading level, but they love soccer, they could read a book all about soccer, but it's going to use the vocabulary that they can understand. So I love the fact that we now have this opportunity to make sure that content To be chronologically age appropriate while we're still matching the developmental reading age.
0: I think that's important. I don't mean to be overzealous and your child will learn to read. The reason why I'm so passionate about that is I sat in so many meetings where I was told Liam will not learn to read or they didn't want to teach him to read. And I completely acknowledge that everybody will have the level at which they read. But it will be their level, and they will be able to read. And it's so empowering. A lot of the misperception of Down syndrome comes from the limits that were put on our children. And if you don't teach my child to read, that limits him. He cannot go out and get a job. He cannot function in an active way. You're taking his power away from him in his own life. And yes, absolutely. I have a different reading level than Steven. Sophia has a different reading level. You know, we all, so it's not just Down syndrome. And that's always my goal is to just neutralize this bubble of limits and expectations that, it, that are put, that it would be anything other than a, a neurotypical experience is the same thing, except there's not such a flashlight just on them. So I, I have to say, I love your colleagues. <laughs> Every colleague that you've ever brought to us, just I I love the fact that this opens the door of such opportunity and that feeling of being able to pursue something you love and maybe not being feeling like there's a limit because of your ability. I think that's good for every human being and I'm, I'm glad it's reached into our community now
1: tarheelreader.org.
0: We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you because I know um, when you were talking about some of the games, is that what you mean when you say on your website or is that the Scott co website with the different brain games and stuff that are accessible?
2: Yeah. So it's a new website. So it's called down syndrome, brain train.com. So if you go to down syndrome, brain train.com, it's a whole micro page that I've created all about the smart curriculum People sign up there, they will get free videos of me kind of uh, going through this. And then at the end, you have access to the full five-part video set where I really try to make sure people get the best information. And I am dedicated as new information comes out to updating this and making sure that as I learn, everyone is learning with me.
0: Okay, R.
2: Reduce sugar. Sugar, sugar, sugar is such an inflammatory product in our bodies, but let's get down to the science. When we take in sugar, any of us, what happens? Insulin in our body starts to get activated and insulin says, oh my goodness, we have this sugar, let's start to store it. That's insulin's main job. What we're now starting to realize is when insulin doesn't have any sugar around, it has another secondary superpower. And you know what that is? Just like the glial cells, it could clean up plaques in the brain. So if we aren't using insulin to gobble up and do sugar, then left to its own devices, it could actually be a secondary cleanup mechanism in the brain. So why should we be overloading our loved ones with Down syndrome with sugar throughout the day, stealing away the superpower protectiveness of the insulin? Sugar is everywhere. And I can't tell you how hard it is as an American to really be careful about the amount of sugar we take in. The American Heart Association is very clear On how much sugar we should all be taking in. Adult women should have less than 25 grams of added sugar daily, and adult men should have less than 38 grams of added sugar daily. And people with Down syndrome, I would argue, should be even less given their load of Alzheimer's disease. You just need to go to the grocery store and turn over one of those strawberry yogurts to find that you've already, with one yogurt, one snack, have probably consumed almost all of your sugar throughout the day. So I just challenge all listeners for a week to count up the added sugar that your loved one with Down syndrome is consuming. Don't beat yourself up because you're not alone. It's going to be reality and try to work hard with a nutritionist to reduce that to what the American Heart Association recommends.
1: So we're talking added sugar. Uh, Is there a concern about fresh fruit, stuff like that? That that, sugar is not
2: being counted toward these grams, correct? Exactly. And let's talk about the difference. When you eat an apple, most people with down syndrome if you give them one apple probably won't finish the whole apple. Why? It takes a while. You got to chew, you got to eat. There's fiber in there. So when I digest that, all of the fructose and the sugar in there slowly gets broken down. Insulin doesn't need to come rushing in because we have that fiber around it. Now what happens if I get one of those super power green machine smoothie drinks? What's in the super power green smoothie drinks that are out there? There are three apples that are pulverized. There's an orange that's pulverized. There's a pear that's pulverized. You take all of that, even though it's natural sugar, you've stripped out the fiber. It's though they ate three apples and two oranges, and they never would have consumed that in real life. So yes, we're talking about added sugar, but sometimes if we take things out of their natural orientation and pulverize them and repackage them, that can be just as dangerous.
1: That's great to know. We're writing notes down,
0: we are. We make fresh smoothies every morning. Does to- <laughs> that
2: we
1: might have some to
0: read? We might have to, and you know
2: what? I want to say is the average American, when we go through our educational system, how much education do we get about nutrition? Right? Where do we learn nutrition from? And when you think about our bodies being so important, like, is not nutrition a fundamental part of keeping all of us whole? And how unfair we just kind of think we know nutrition, it's kind of like what our parents taught us, but where did they get that from? It therefore comes from advertising. Let's not even get into advertising and how that does it. So I'm here to say that a real gift every family could give themselves is to request some appointment with a nutritionist. There are licensed dietitians that are out there. And a good website to go to is eatright.org. So e-a-t-right r-i-g-h-t.org. And there is a place where you can enter a, your zip code and it will find all the licensed dietitians in your area and what insurance covers. And I usually say as a family, you're quick to take your kids to the doctor when they have an ear infection. But this is even far more fundamental. Why not start to build and take a look at ways to just kind of tweak everyone's household dietary intake?
0: I just realized we're very guilty of going, all right, reduce sugar, tea, what's next? But it's, <laughs> we do feel guilty because as parents, you know, we're advocates, we're providers, we're all of these things. And then as parents of a child with Down syndrome, we're all of these things squared. They, with Sophia, there was that parent guilt if I didn't stay to watch the whole dance class or, you know, do if, if I ever stepped away. And it's it's so much more impacted with Liam, like if to say no. And so when you mention food, like food, it can be medicine. If you think of everything that you eat as medicine, you know, are you going to give yourself good medicine or bad medicine? But then there's that, because we do really well, we believe. But as soon as you say like pulverized uh, fruit, we're like, oh, we make those smoothies in the morning and you can feel guilty. So instead of feeling guilty, no, you've done your best. But then with a greater knowledge, it's not like, you know, rip up your whole diet just be mindful about it and make changes where you can and it doesn't it's just like if you're going to start an exercise program if you like throw away all your bad food and say i'm going to work out 5 hours a day it's not going to work it's how do we make it a new habit how do we create a new habit when it comes to eating
1: and how do we educate ourselves and that's where right. eatright.org can get us on the right path to get a nutritionist and then also find out what what our insurance will cover make it you know, affordable for everyone.
0: So, And get rid of the other emotions. And when you go to the birthday party, you can then say uh, a smaller sliver, or you can say, we don't eat sugar. And won't that blow the minds off of people with their perception of Down syndrome? And that's what everybody should be doing anyway.
2: So just a, a pause to say, I don't want any of the listeners to beat themselves up. Being a parent is so hard and parents do things out of love. And so I really hope people take this information we're discussing and be empowered. Do not please beat yourself up. It's, it's all about tweaks that we can make and how we take this information and just make tomorrow a little bit better than it is today.
0: Yeah, we're learning something today that we didn't know yesterday. So how, how do we move forward is what's important. T. Uh, T.
2: So T is treating all those co-occurring conditions that might interfere with brain health. We've talked about some of them, obstructive sleep apnea. 75% of people with Down syndrome develop it and redevelop it and redevelop it. We now have studies that show even mild obstructive sleep apnea Then, in a neurotypically developing child, we would just let go. Mild apnea in someone with Down syndrome can lead to a loss of nine IQ points within a year. We work hard for those IQ points and we're not going to lose them to sleep apnea. But does your child have symptoms? Are they getting tested? We have to make sure that that doesn't accumulate over time, sleep apnea. We know that iron is important. So, iron deficiency is one of the most common deficiencies in American children. And we know in the neurotypical population, just like people with Down syndrome, it can lead to long term neurodevelopmental and behavioral outcomes if someone doesn't have enough iron. Your child or your loved one with Down syndrome on an annual basis should be getting their iron levels checked, and if their iron isn't past where it should be, it's working again with the dietician to make sure that they have foods rich in iron. It's also important to make sure that people with Down syndrome get their usual checkup, and this is going back to Down syndrome clinic to you. Are they getting their hearing checked? Are they getting their vision checked? Why is all of these medical issues important? It's to make sure that we don't let biology get in the way to the extent we can. So when they are in school, they're able to absorb all the knowledge when they're with their friends in the S, they're able to activate and be with their friends and socialize when they want to move, they feel well, and their 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 bodies feel full and clean. And it's not like they have other symptoms. So this is where the mind body really comes together. And on my website, I go through kind of all of those medical conditions that need to be checked.
0: And Down Syndrome Clinic to you, we can we can go there too with our symptoms, like what are our symptoms? And, and so if you, you think maybe we do have symptoms that are for sleep apnea or these other coexisting conditions, go there, do an intake, and you, you'll be provided the feedback.
2: We don't want parents to struggle anymore. You have a question, you have a symptom, put it into Down Syndrome Clinic to you. We will give you the best information that we would ordinarily be given in person. No need to make an expensive trip to Boston to come to see us in our program. We're coming to your homes and we're here to help
1: i didn't realize sleep apnea was that common in the community liam actually sleeps i think quieter than any any of us uh, in in the house i mean he he sleeps what i think is sleeps hard i'd love to put an apple watch on him and actually uh, we should probably do that and just kind of like see who has what a sleep pattern is like but
2: what are the symptoms that we're looking for with sleep apnea here's the challenge is the majority of obstructive sleep apnea people with down syndrome is silent So it gives us very few clues whatsoever. So of course, if someone with Down syndrome is snoring at night, they're choking at night, they're gasping at night. Yes, those are the symptoms. My goodness, rush to get a sleep study. But because of that, the American Academy of Pediatrics says everyone with Down syndrome, regardless of their age, should get a sleep study around the age four. If they're older than four, quickly catch up and get one as soon as possible. Everyone needs at least one sleep study just to make sure there's no silent apnea underneath there. After that, it's looking for any change in your child's baseline. So if you know, oh, they're just a little bit more irritable, their behavior is off. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe they're not getting restful, oxygenated sleep. The school's starting to notice, boy, just the past you know, four months, they're really struggling and they never struggled before. Maybe they're, it feels like they're brain fogging, right? So oftentimes it's behaviors and it's performance that is our best clues and not the classic snoring, choking, gasping at night. That's great to know.
0: So Alzheimer's, it's a reality. It's a, I think it's something as well that the neurotypical population is a concern for them as they get old, whether it be, you know, hereditary and whatnot. I think it's a concern for everyone. So SMART is our approach for preventive medicine. It's our empowered approach to Alzheimer's.
2: Socialize, move more, activate that brain reduce sugar and treat those other conditions that might lead to academic misperformance.
0: The things that pop out in my brain that are so important is inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. I hear to see our children as whole for their opportunity and don't be limited by the misperceptions of their ability because biologically they have the ability. Incorporate these games into our daily lives because then it's not a chore because our kids get enough services and supports that they don't need to have something else be another big deal. And these games seem like they'd be really great for everyone. S M A R T. I feel like they all go together when you're yeah, one
1: rolls into the next, right? When
0: you're beans, you can be social and also get that brain activity at the same time. Know that your child can read, uh, approach them, at their reading level, but always activating their brain. And as they're reading, the more you read, the more that reading is going to improve. We have TarHeelReader.org. We have DownSyndromeBrainTrain.com. We have DSC2U.
1: We have EatRight.org. And Mm EatRight. So
0: when you're playing those games and you're socializing and you're playing those board games or eating, have a healthy snack. And it's a habit. The habit of picking up uh, ice cream cone. You can think about how long it took, really how long did it take for that habit to form and give yourself that same amount of time to form a new habit of eating right. And it's just about, it's really about mindfulness, about kind of taking that time to, to be present in those choices and to not feel guilty.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, let's do this together. Uh, People need to know they're not alone. There are professionals out there and just making one step at a time uh, and working with your loved one with Down syndrome. And I hope everyone has a a healthy and and bright future by by putting all these into their lives.
0: I also wanted to do uh, a shout out to your book that Sophia is reading right now. Maybe, you know, other people can pick up and, and start to read and we can put a link to it. Do you sell it on your website?
2: I link to it through my website, but also the publisher, woodbinehouse.com, which is a great publisher for a lot of great information. They carry uh, Fasten Your Seatbelts, Crash Course on Down Syndrome for brothers and sisters.
0: Fasten Your Seatbelts, like Crash Course for Down Syndrome, is actually a good read for anyone who wants to learn about Down Syndrome. It really answers so many questions that, that I have.
2: Thank you. I find, and I can't wait for this conversation and to get Sophia's questions, but kids ask the most important questions because they don't have the, I don't know, the hesitancy of adults who feel like we need to ask the perfect, they just cut to the chase. And sometimes those are the toughest questions to answer. And I just can't wait for us to unpack so many of those uh, during our next conversation.
1: Well, Dr. Brian, it is always a pleasure to have you on. You have such great information that we can share and we're so happy to, to continue to have you on as a guest and
2: thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for your time today and for all the great things and the resources that you and your colleagues provide for our community.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Real pleasure being here today.
1: Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, we com to send us an email with questions and comments.